Hello, and welcome to A Glimpse into the Future. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and in this podcast series, I talk to some of the world's leading experts to better understand how new technologies and ideas will shape our future. In this episode, I talk to Bernie Meyerson, Chief Innovation Officer of IBM and co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Advanced Materials. Uh, so, Bernie, you have been working with what we would call advanced materials for quite some time now. Uh, walk us through a bit of the history of advanced materials as you have been involved with them. Uh, um, actually, oh, my background is I'm a solid-state physicist, so when the second you say those words, it implies by definition you work with advanced materials. In my PhD, in fact, was the time when amorphous semiconductors were really hot. And people were looking at them, for instance, to solve the energy crisis, cheap generation of photovoltaics. Um, I basically didn't want to get involved as a me too, because people were using uh, amorphous silicon as the model. So I looked at the potential for using amorphous carbon as a similar advanced materials for photovoltaics. You can actually make carbon behave like a semiconductor. However, big however, um, as it turned out, through my thesis, I discovered it actually is arguably the world's worst semiconductor. So from the perspective of using it for anything in the electronics space, amorphous carbon simply didn't make any progress. Mm -hmm. However, what was interesting is upon graduating, I joined IBM. And one of the curious things about this amorphous carbon that I've been working with is I would grow it in a reactor, and there was literally no way of cleaning this off the surfaces of that reactor. You could use anything you wanted. It was impervious to every chemical you could imagine. As it turns out, it was also impossibly hard. It's not that you could not scrub it off. You could take things like sandpaper, steel wool, nothing made any difference. So what I wound up doing is in my work at IBM, I realized that hard disks, disk drives for data Mm -hmm. storage, the problem they were having is the height, they fly the heads above the moving disk got lower and lower as they tried to make more and more dense storage. The trouble is every once in a while the head would hit the actual disk and do a tremendous amount of damage, many times losing data. It was a tremendous problem. And I remembered that amorphous carbon was ridiculously tough. We experimented and discovered that even a 50 atom thick layer of amorphous carbon on the head and the disk was sufficient to protect it against almost all conceivable damage, even when the head and disc collided. It turns out that was one of my first patents, and it, in the end, that is in virtually every technology of that type that was shipped for 20 years. So about advanced materials, you have to keep your eyes open. Just because they don't work in one field you know, doesn't change the fact that they're useful. Similarly, later, uh, my team and I discovered how you make uh, silicon germanium. Mm-hmm. And although it's just a modification of silicon, it dramatically improves the uh, performance of all transistors that are based upon it compared to pretty much anything out there. And as a result, we were able to dramatically decrease the cost of things like Wi-Fi that rely upon very, very high power, but nonetheless hopefully low-cost electronics to communicate uh, between systems. It turns out this actually enabled the Wi-Fi revolution for the first roughly 10, 20 years, we actually made it possible by dropping the cost of developing Wi-Fi, which already existed, to the point that we became one of the dominant suppliers, 80 to 100% of the market, actually, 
for quite a while. So again, sometimes it's not even that you invent the technology it's used for, but rather you simply so dramatically change the cost that everybody implies it. So that was how long ago? Almost ancient history. We're Almost talking 25 years, 20, 25 years ago. Since then, though... 25 years ago. So what, what's, what do we see now? <coughs> do we see materials of similar nature that are being created now that you think have the potential of changing the gameplay in uh, Well, in certainly, I'll give you an example. There are, you know, people talk about nanotechnology, but mm -hmm. for instance, a very specific material, carbon nanotubes. They have remarkable properties, one of which is they can carry 10 or 100 times the amount of electricity per unit volume than metals. And one of the challenges we're having in electronics is the scale of the conductors have become so small. If you try to run the amount of electricity, we need to run through these tiny, tiny, tiny metal layers that would fit in these new chips. They would burst into flames. I mean, it, you're reaching a point where you'd really like to find an alternative material. That's just one example. Mm -hmm. Similarly, two-dimensional materials like graphene, which literally is one atomic layer of carbon arranged in rings all bound together. In the plane of the material, it is unimaginably strong. So you can actually think of intermingling these um, sheets of graphene to form impossibly strong and impossibly Um, essentially light materials for building that were inconceivable even five years ago. So, you name it, the materials progress continues. So, take us a bit into the future, not too far, in the next 15 years. Where could you see application of these kind of materials having an impact in solving some of our problems or creating some new products, creating some new solutions? Well, the use of carbon, for instance, is an actual backbone of the building materials. Um, when you're talking about building lightweight materials, so you're not really digging into the environment to find other heavier materials that you have to mine. Mm -hmm. I mean, carbon is among the most common materials in the world. That in and of itself just has a very good ecological impact. But from some real challenging technological issues... There are those identified in the context of the forum as examples. If you look at global warming, mm -hmm. that's a tremendous challenge we face. And dealing with that, really, the way in which you generate electricity is one of the major ways in which you then reduce carbon loads if you can generate electricity in manners that don't require the production of CO2. That means basically eliminating the use of coal as one example. The other challenge, of course, identified well here, is this challenge of potable water. Again, in the next 20 years, there are regions of the world where that will literally run out. Now what? If you look at these major challenges and then put them in the context of new materials, it gets interesting. As an example, let's talk about potable water. If you want to get drinking water, there is an infinite supply of water out there. It's called oceans. The problem is fresh water. Not so much of that. If you're going to use ocean waters, that means you have to desalinate them, take the salt out. There are well-known technologies that do this, called reverse osmosis, where basically what you do is you take an osmotic membrane, it's a membrane of material, and you pressurize water to a huge pressure on one side of the membrane, and the membrane is selective. It'll let water pass, but will not let salt. So the salt separates from the water. The water outside of the membrane has been pushed through it. That water is pure and can be drunk. The water inside gets richer and richer in salt, And after a while, you finally dump the super-concentrated salt solution that builds up on one side of the membrane out, and then pump in fresh salt water and continue. Mm -hmm. There's a big problem with that. There's an enormous energy requirement for the pumps. This is not a minor issue. 
So what do materials you know, have to do with this? Okay, from the perspective of the membrane, materials work on highly efficient osmotic membranes would dramatically reduce the need for energy to carry this out. So that's just one simple place materials could have a major impact. But the tremendous energy requirements to do this on a scale that would make a difference in terms of production for the world, you have to do something about that too, because even with more efficient osmotic membranes, you're still going to be hurting. There, the challenge becomes quite interesting. Renewable energies are very popular as a buzzword, but have some virtually fatal flaws in them. The reason is very simple, which is there are very few sustainable renewable energy technologies that actually are continuous. The challenge they have is, yes, hydroelectric power tends to be continuous. That's a great renewable energy source. Yes, geothermal power tends to be continuous. The trouble is the very popular alternatives, wind power, solar power, photovoltaics, thermal solar power, none of those work all the time. Mm -hmm. No wind, clouds, they come up and down. This causes an enormous problem. Even if you have a very high level, let's say 50% of your power supply is renewables in the form of wind and solar, you can't shut off your traditional generation capacity because if the sun basically blocks, if the sun is blocked and you mm -hmm. lose your photovoltaic supply, you can't just magically spin up generation. It already has to be running. Yeah. So you're still burning an enormous amount of potentially fossil fuels just to keep the generation going for when the renewables don't work. How does material uh, work pertain to you know, dealing with this issue? Okay. One way is, as I said, renewable energy comes and goes depending upon weather conditions, sunlight, etc. If you could store adequate amounts of energy at adequately low cost, what it would mean is you would store that energy and then you wouldn't have to worry about there being no sunlight. During the night, for instance, you could simply use the energy you had stored. Mm -hmm. The problem today is that battery technology in the course of our century uh, basically has made progress that's measured in factors of two, four, six. These are not enormous numbers. To get perspective on um, that silicon technology, by contrast, last century went from basically used to start with circuits of maybe 2K of memory. They go up to now 64, 128 gigabits. Just putting some perspective on it, and even handheld devices, you're talking about progress and measured in factors of 65 million, 70 million. Okay, so you're talking about factors of 2, 5, 10 versus 70 million. Clearly, materials have a very long way to go. The challenge you're going to have here, therefore, is if you could improve battery technology by factors of 10, not 2, you're starting to talk about getting the cost down to the level that you could use renewable energy exclusively and simply store what you need for periods when that renewable was unavailable. So that's one option. That addresses huge problems in society. It addresses global warming, because if you can store the renewable energies you generate, then ultimately you can shut down all your coal-fired plants, all the plants that produce CO2, those fired by oil. So one option. Another interesting option is, if you look at nuclear energy, it has some tremendous benefits, one of which, of course, is you can generate vast amounts of electricity from a nuclear reactor. The challenge is safety. Mm -hmm. This is an ongoing challenge. We all know well what happened to Fukushima. 
when the cooling systems were lost. We all know well what happened when people had reactors that, you know, in, in Russia, basically, as you well know, you have now Priorat, the area around the reactor that uh, blew up. Yeah. Essentially, it won't be occupiable for centuries. Okay. That kind of catastrophe can't be allowed to happen again. Those kinds of disasters really have put a black eye on that industry, frankly. However, think about material options, and these are options that have been considered for years but yet haven't reached maturity. For instance, right now you have nuclear fuel rods, rods containing uranium that are put in water, and water carries the heat generated from the nuclear reaction to steam turbines, and that's how you generate energy. Okay. There are alternative designs. For instance, in some designs, you make small pellets of uranium, and then you coat them in a thick layer of pyrolytic graphite or some other material that can handle spectacularly high temperatures. Okay. You then take these spheres and you create a bed of them in a sealed vessel through which you pump helium. And you use helium to carry the heat to a heat exchanger that is remote, and that heat exchanger then has water on the other side of it. That's heated, makes steam. You generate electricity from that. The beauty of it is that to begin with, by taking the uranium and encapsulating it in a material that melts at an insanely high temperature, is that you don't have to face the issue of a meltdown because you can constrain the system so that no matter what occurs, you simply never get above the temperature at which that encapsulation melts. Secondly, you can also do it in a way that produces passive cooling because you see helium doesn't become radioactive when you expose it to these incredibly high fluences of radioactive uh, energy radiation, essentially, during its use. So even in a catastrophic failure of your helium system, quite literally, if you had to, you could open up the reactor and just dump the heat to air. And because the helium and no other part is essentially radioactive, even if you open it up to the atmosphere, it's not a problem from a radiation release point of view. Mm -hmm. More importantly, other than some unfortunate pigeon that happens to be going by at low altitude that will instantly um, be cooked, which... You know, you don't want to do that. Believe me, this is only in a real emergency. The point is, it is a different way of thinking of nuclear energy, where you try to make it inherently safe, rather than counting on backup after backup after backup system. So this is all fascinating. I mean, this sounds like possible solutions to problems uh, related to environment, related to energy, related to, to water access. Uh, and I imagine many more, we don't have time to discuss all of them, but I was wondering, you're here in Davos with uh, all of the, the world's leaders, uh, leaders of uh, big uh, institutions, leaders of big, from the private sector, from governments. Uh, what would you tell to them? What are the biggest blocks in actually developing these technologies? Uh, is it uh, something that we can do in research, in science? Is it something to do with policy? Uh, wh where should the world focus in terms of bringing these solutions to reality? There are several issues, some governmental, some private industry. From the perspective of governmental efforts, first of all, in the regulatory realm, you may have to bite the bullet and say, look, I know that if I produce a, how do I say, a domesticated nuclear reactor, in other words, one that really is inherently safe as opposed to something where we're reliant upon actions to be safe, that may not have the same energy density as a traditional reactor, which will drive up the cost of electricity. And you may have to decide whether saving the world from a catastrophic issue with global warming is worth investing more heavily 
in the cost of electricity produced by an inherently safe variant that doesn't involve generating carbon dioxide. That's one issue. Mm -hmm. Another issue is these areas require investments in R&D, and they're not small investments. To build a hypothetical nuclear reactor at scale using all of the advanced technologies to make it essentially safe as a passive entity, where even in the event of everything not working, it doesn't produce a catastrophic result. Mm -hmm. That kind of effort to do a full-scale built is billions and billions of dollars. And there's no private industry that can do that. At the level of private industry, you need a public-private partnership where if the government steps up and says, okay, I will be the first user, and I will accept the cost of that first breakthrough effort because until you scale up and do multiples, it's going to be hugely expensive. Then private industry needs to step up and take the risk of generating these new materials. Similarly, if you look at water, once again, there would need to be one of these global challenges saying we need to have a capability of generating this quantity of water at this level of energy production by this date and put it out there as a challenge to the commercial vendors who generate these reverse osmosis systems and see if they can get there, see if universities can participate. All of these problems, even just battery efficiency, unless you mitigate the enormous investment that people have to make to pursue them, they're not going to happen. So we need people to work together. We need, in some cases, potentially, to simply dictate, we will achieve this goal by this date, or there will be economic consequences that will drive you to get to that goal. It's not something you should sit back and say, it'll happen by itself. That's, that's just too dangerous because of the importance of these issues. So we need long-term vision, international cooperation, uh, you seem to be at the right place. I hope uh, your efforts in, in getting some of these things going are successful. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. That was Bernie Mayerson, Chief Innovation Officer of IBM. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and that was all from this episode of A Glimpse into the Future. <laughs>